Imagine you go to the headquarters of Danona, the dairy giant, and you ask them, what is your biggest growth market? And they say, China, a nation that is 92% lactose intolerant and has no cultural tradition of eating dairy. Please, what? According to research by Euromonitor International, China is the second largest dairy market after the US. And it's right on track to exceed the US and become number one. Since 2010, China has been the largest dairy importer in the world. Stick around because this is seriously such a fascinating topic. How did milk go from being barbarian to being seen as a valuable necessity for strong, healthy Chinese babies? How is the Communist Party of China using milk as a political tool and insights into how small cultural changes can have massive repercussions if your culture is freaking 1.4 billion people large? Get ready for this one. Welcome to the fifth season of Red to Green on history for the future of food. Stick around till the end to find out how this story may relate to the present and future of food tech. Let's jump right in. You're listening to Red to Green, the audiobook style podcast on food tech and sustainability, moving the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. China is the most unlikely place to become a dairy nation, so let's look into history and the roots of this development. They can be found in the Opium Wars in the 19th century. I'm quoting Xianji from the China Good Food Fund. You have to understand the psychology here. There's a sense in China that we have been humiliated ever since the Opium Wars. But now we are no longer going to be humiliated by foreign powers. China has had an extensive history of severe famines, like the Great Chinese Famine in 1959, which was highly influenced by agricultural reforms. For most of the imperial dynasties, until the 20th century, milk was generally seen as disgusting food for barbarians. For most of the 20th century, milk had a relatively low profile in China. China's economy was close to the global market, and its production was minimal. Throughout the Mao era, milk was in short supply, rationed to those deemed to have a particular need, infants and the elderly, athletes and political party staff above a particular grade. Therefore, milk was considered a special treat. When Richard Nixon visited China in the early 70s, what was he gifted? He was given a white rabbit, a candy, a chewy white caramel made of milk solids. Seven of these is supposed to equal one glass of milk. Now you can imagine if you give the most important person of the Western world at that time a gift and it's a white rabbit, a milk candy, that says a lot about what kind of status milk developed throughout the 20th century. As China opened up to the market in the 1980s after Mao's death, dried milk powder began appearing in small shops where you could buy it with state-issued coupons. Chanji's parents bought milk powder because they thought it would make him stronger. He says in an interview, it was expensive, I didn't like it, I was intolerant, but we persuaded ourselves it was the food of the future. In a little over 30 years, milk has become the symbol of modern affluent society and a sign of a country that can feed its people. The average person in China has gone from barely drinking milk to consuming about 30 kilograms of dairy products in a year. 
Though that is still just a bit more than one-tenth of American dairy consumption, it matters if 1.4 billion people do it. The transition has been driven by the Chinese Communist Party, for which milk is not just food, but a critical strategic tool. For a country that was not long ago stricken by famine, the ability to afford animal products, particularly milk, has been marked as a visible symbol of the party's success. Also, during the one-child policy, the CCP made a social pact with the people. While family size might be limited, the state would make sure that each couple's offspring would be as strong as it could make them. Feeding children milk took on great importance in maintaining that image. The CCP created a market for milk where there had been none before and invested heavily in developing a domestic dairy industry. The 1984 Olympic Games and their television coverage enabled Chinese people to see real foreigners live on TV for the first time. Since the foreign athletes were mainly stronger and taller than their Chinese competitors, the belief spread that Chinese people needed to catch up by introducing more meat and dairy into their diets. The arrival of Western-style fast food, such as McDonald's, in the early 90s brought cheese into the everyday Chinese diet. The decade end saw Starbucks opening in Beijing and Western-style coffee shop culture took off, making milk fashionable. Milk represented modernity, progress and the rise of China as a global superpower. By the 1990s and early 2000s, adverts were running on TV saying that drinking milk would save the nation. It would make China stronger and better able to survive competition from other countries. Drinking milk was deliberately associated with athletic prowess and national pride. Ili, one of the nation's leading dairy producers, was designated official partner and supplier of milk to the Olympics in 2008. Its slogan was, with me, China is strong. Mangyao, China's second largest dairy producer, was an official sponsor of the 2018 Football World Cup. Its advertisements were ubiquitous during matches with the slogan, Power of Nature, Born for Greatness. Now you may be wondering, what about lactase? What about this whole lactose intolerance thing? Babies are born with the capacity to make lactase most of the time, the enzyme needed to digest the lactose in milk. But generally, many kids lose it eventually. But when infants never stop drinking milk, such as in Western countries, they are more likely to maintain a capacity to produce lactase and avoid suffering the bloating that puts people off. To spread the milk habit further, the state created new generations of dairy consumers. Health professionals were trained to tell people to feed their children milk. But then the state initiated a school milk program in the 2000s to give a daily cup of free milk to urban children and later extended it to rural areas. One reason for the success of dairy products in China, despite ubiquitous lactose intolerance, is that a great deal of the dairy consumption is yogurt and infant formula, but that's a whole other topic. The fermentation process breaks down lactose, so there's not much left to bother people. Moreover, creating future dairy consumers may have proven to be successful. More recently, China's preventative medicine agency suggested that by the time kids are 11 to 13 years old, only around 40% have lost the ability to digest lactose. New official nutrition guidelines were issued recommending more milk and dairy foods. 
Now China's guidelines recommend 300 grams of milk or its equivalent. The USDA recommends 380 grams. It's not too far off. If Chinese dairy consumption continues to rise, it, quote, will have major global consequences, end quote. As Gerard Waldhoff, professor at Wageningen University, put it in a related study. But let's face it, that's pretty common sense. If they're actually already number two globally, reaching the kind of consumption of America would be devastating. Former Premier Wen Jiaobao visited a dairy farm in 2006 and wrote that he had the dream that everyone in China, and especially children, would have one gin or 500 grams of milk a day. Have you been enjoying this episode so far? The next time you open up your company's Slack or Discord channel, or you log into LinkedIn, maybe think about this episode, or Red to Green in general, and share it with your colleagues or your community. This really helps us a lot to keep doing Red to Green and keep delivering high quality content to you absolutely for free. Thank you so much and back to the episode. Let's quickly paddle back and look a bit at the development of companies that enabled this. The reinvention of milk as a staple has required a bunch of changes. It involved privatizing farming, allowing processing companies to become corporations, converting desert areas into giant factory farms, and at the very beginning, you could say, after the Mao era, when China opened up to the global market, there were a lot of reforms that ended collective farming and agriculture, opened industries to foreign investments, and allowed individuals to start businesses. From the mid-80s onwards, several leading dairy transnationals, such as Fonterra, Nestle, Danone and Arla, have made significant investments in China to grow their brands there. Chinese dairy processors supported by the state and with access to new foreign capital also spent millions creating demand for advertising first and only then looking to meet supply second. From the late 90s onwards, the Communist Party's five-year plan introduced a variety of supports for dairy businesses. The state offered loans to farmers to buy cows, gave processing companies tax breaks, and issued tens of millions in national debt funds to improve breeding stocks and milking and packaging facilities. But where's the scandal? Of course there's a scandal. This is the food history season. There need to be scandals. <laughs> so in 2008, melamine, a chemical used in plastics, was added to baby formula to artificially boost its protein content in nutrition tests. It ended up killing at least six children and making over 300,000 ill, causing kidney stones and severe pain. So since then, imports and the regulation has become way more strict. And especially when it comes to infant formula, the Chinese trust the local brands less and less. But even that deliberate adulteration scandal did not quench milk consumption over the long term, but fostered the development of dairy imports. Consumers became even more suspicious about local food safety, and most parents prefer buying foreign brands of milk for their young children. Chinese state-owned companies have accelerated the industrialization and professionalization of production and invested in large-scale farms to rebuild confidence. By 2018, according to Nielsen, China's domestic production made up 43%. Now let's look at the lessons. The take-home message from this story is clear. 
even when the odds are against it, it is possible to change a culture and launch a product that does not really belong into a culture. Dairy products in China profited from the scarcity of milk and its exclusivity in the beginning. The desire for the product has to be raised even now when the product is still scarce, expensive and difficult to obtain because it builds this brand. Furthermore, the Chinese dairy industry profited enormously from government investments and support, making it possible to scale quickly once the milk market had been created. The question is, what is the political agenda behind it? And how can a certain positive product category fit into this political agenda? The example of dairy products in China also shows that it's possible to change eating habits fundamentally. This transition will not happen overnight, though within years, while constantly confronting consumers with the advantages of an alternative product. Let me leave you with a fantastic quote by Shanji. The Chinese have learned to drink milk in the same way they have learned to drink Coca-Cola. Cola seemed weird at first. It tasted odd. It was brown. It had horrible bubbles. Milk was the same. But we were drinking something in our imagination. We were drinking the Western lifestyle, what was modern. Thank you for listening. As always, I love to connect with listeners. So just drop me a line on LinkedIn. My name is Marina Schmidt. Marina, like the ocean, like the marine. And Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T. You can also find me by just typing in Rettigreen on LinkedIn and finding me associated with it. And as always, I want to thank people behind this episode. There's one person in particular, Celeste Gupta, who I want to point out because she has been with Red to Green since 2020 and as an audio editor has been the most reliable person I can generally always count on to help with making these podcasts into something you enjoy listening to. So big thank you to Celeste Gupta for audio editing, to Katarina Tilch for the ground research for this episode and Lara Twayman for the editing of the script. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.